at my particular screening of Incredibles 2, the actual print, like the digital print, failed just before the feature started, before the short started, rather. And we had to watch all the trailers again. Oh, my God. Really? But they gave us vouchers when we were on our way out. So Okay, good. So at least Cineplex is pretty good for that, I find. Yeah. And like people were people were like freaking out in the in my screening. So uh. <laughs> that always helps. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when people start freaking out. Next time, Rob, you're in a bad movie. Just start freaking out. See if you can get a voucher for another movie. <laughs> just so, People were like getting up and storming out and like going and bothering the ushers to like fix yeah. the problem. And like next time we go to a movie rob you and i will sit in separate sections and we'll pretend to get into a fight <laughs> be like shut up you and then you'll be like no you shut up yeah and then you yell something racist <laughs> and then i'll get the free ticket and voila it sounds like you benefit in that situation and i f- and i end up looking like an idiot well it's fine right <laughs> Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. My name is Jason Chen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Snow. We got a bit of a packed show coming for you. We took a little time off to catch up on some movies, talk to our friends. In our episode, Rob talked to Kate Wilkinson, our dear friend, who I will engage in a defense of Vancouver after she trashed my city, despite having visited and enjoyed her time here, I think. This week's episode, we're going to talk about Solo, we're going to talk about The Incredibles, we're going to talk about all the movies and all the trailers that we've seen this week that just dropped all of a sudden like a big bag of bricks. So without further ado, Robert Snow, how's it going? I'm doing all right. How about you? Good, good. How was that intro? <laughs> that was pretty good. I like that. The uh, you gotta gotta get that uh, injection of drama into the uh, the intro, kind of keep people interested for this uh, this showdown now between uh, Toronto and Vancouver that uh, that's brewing. Yeah. Okay. So I, I kind of want to kick off the podcast with that. <laughs> so if you listen to our previous episode with our dear friend or frenemy <laughs> Kate Wilkinson, as you guys all know, Kate Wilkinson's a proud Torontonian. I have no objections with that whatsoever. Maybe sometimes. I like to make a case for the defense of Vancouver. So there's three things that... uh, I don't remember all the insults that Kate threw at me because, you know, I just kind of tuned her out after a while. Thanks, Kate. But there are three things that she noted in particular. One, Vancouver's ugly. Two, the commute is terrible everywhere. And three was... What was the third one, Rob? Bike lanes? It's just like nondescript architecture. (laughs) Okay. Well, Kate, here's the news. I completely agree with you. (sighs) What? Vancouver is not pretty. If you walk around downtown, you'll see a mixture of buildings, and none of them really look that good. I'll concede that first. And I think that you might have a point. I think it's because we're spoiled by the beautiful mountains, which you don't have, and the beautiful ocean, which you also don't have. And so none of us really care if our city's ugly or not. We usually just kind of get out of the city when we go on vacation or if we need a break. I do think that's changing quite a bit now. There are a lot of condo developments in Vancouver and the surrounding areas where they've hired world-famous or world-renowned architects to kind of give Vancouver a better profile. If I told you about 
to describe the Toronto skyline, the first thing you point out is probably the CN Tower, right? In Vancouver, there's no real landmark, but there is um, the Canada Place Harbor, which is, I think, very recognizable, although it does look a shade like the Sydney Opera House. But because it's on the water, usually your attention's more gazed out towards the sea rather than at the harbor. So I think at that in that sort of sense, Vancouver is kind of underrated. If you go to Gastown, I think Gastown is like a particularly historical part of Vancouver that looks actually very nice. The second one is the commute. So if you've lived in Vancouver, the one thing I think people will really bitch about all the time is bike lanes. And I, I do think it's a legitimate gripe. There are a lot of people who really like the bike lanes and there are people who really don't. I'm in the group that's, that really doesn't like the bike lanes. But it is true that in Vancouver, public transportation, as much as you guys in Toronto complain about the TTC, public transportation in Vancouver is like 50 times worse. The buses aren't on time. The SkyTrain's all right, but it doesn't go anywhere. You go to major, um, you know, sections of the city, but if you live out, you know, in the burbs or further away from city centers, it is a pain to get to, which is why there's a lot of need for cars. I think a lot, I'd say like, the vast majority of people who work downtown commute from elsewhere. And so it kind of makes the bike lanes kind of redundant because if you live too far, you can't possibly bike to work. You have to take the car. And these bike lanes become a nuisance. And not to mention, they're the worst, poor, the most poorly implemented bike lanes in, in the world. If you go to other cities, there are specific paths for bikes, but they're not on... They're not right next to the road. Usually they're right next to a sidewalk or there's like an island partition between roads where you can specifically bike or walk. Vancouver doesn't have that. That being said, I think there are quite a few things that Vancouver has ahead of Toronto. This rant is going on for quite a while. So feel feel free to (laughs) edit some parts out, Rob. First of all, I think the food in Vancouver is awesome. I think it's better than Toronto, especially in terms of ethnic food. Um, I think the New York Times has ran a piece where um, outside of Asia, obviously, the best Asian food you can get is in Richmond, which is a, a suburb of uh, Vancouver. And I think that's 100% true. As much as I love all you ter- Ontarians and Toronto people, sometimes I feel like you guys should just get out of Toronto just a teensy bit more. It, there's this sort of like small town, backcountry, smug kind of vibe that comes with being Canadian. And I think Ontario's the worst offender for that. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> you guys are. You guys have your little cabins on the lake in Muskoka, Muskoka or whatever. And you think the world is great. But you know what? Get out of Ontario and you'll probably see some real mountains that aren't just, you know, buddy hills. Some real rivers. Some good, clean water and oceans. Like... Being next to an ocean is probably like the most underrated thing ever. I I think at some point living in Ottawa and Toronto, I really started to miss the water. I mean, yeah, I can I can definitely see that. Uh, I definitely miss uh, the the uh, the ocean uh, out east. uh, But speaking of which, when are you coming to Vancouver, Rob? Well, I mean, uh, as soon as I can, I think. I mean, it's uh, I'm still kind of ashamed that uh, it's the the one part of Canada that I haven't properly explored. Oh, you you should. Uh, I will give Toronto one thing. Of all the big cities in Canada, Toronto actually feels like a major hustle and bustle metropolitan city. Oh, yeah, yeah. Vancouver is far too closed off. 
there's no real thriving businesses here downtown. Like, you don't really hear of companies setting up headquarters in Vancouver. We just, for whatever reason, don't attract that kind of investment mm. or um, workforce. Yeah, Vancouver is like a retirement city. It's, you don't do a lot of business here. It's just a nice place to live and hang out. <laughs> um, but maybe back to your uh, re- regularly scheduled programming on this show. Um, yes, you did. You did come and listen to this podcast for uh, movies and TV discussion, uh, not just uh, <laughs> yeah, inter inter city fighting. Um, but uh, we were going to catch up with uh, Solo, I think, next up. You look good. A little rough around the edges, but good. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? It's Granted, it's been a few weeks since it came out, but um, uh, I think it's... You know, it's been one of probably the more contentious points in the whole movie fan world in that space of time. Yeah, I think we've had enough time to really like digest the whole thing. Mm, yeah. L- well, let's start with you. I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. So, what what did you think of it? Well, here's the thing about about Solo for me. I coming out of it like that night. I, I think I yeah I saw it opening weekend, so it was pretty you know it was pretty hot off the presses as it were. My initial takeaway was that I actually liked it more than Avengers: Infinity War. What? And yeah, and I'm gonna fight you on that. <laughs> and my reasoning for that is not based on filmmaking quality because arguably you know one to one comparison, Infinity War is a better made movie in many respects. Agreed. But for me. I actually enjoy experiencing the world of Star Wars more than the world of Marvel superheroes. Mm, okay. So there's a there's a kind of like and I don't know if it's because like Star Wars was my entry point into movie fandom. Oh. Um, so there's a bit of a nostalgia thing uh going on there. Okay. Yeah, you know, setting aside like kids movies obviously that I would have watched uh at a younger age, but like Star Wars was was what I can remember to be the first like major movie uh, fandom experience that I ever had. I have that. I had that kind of adding to my takeaway from the movie. It's a bias, Rob. It's a bias. Yeah, it's a bias. Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> call it call what you will. Yeah, I ended up coming out of it. And I'm like, yeah, I like. And now, granted, I saw it for what I saw it for its flaws as well, because you know, there's there, there's plenty of very valid uh, arguments about how. It's a kind of linear storyline, you know, the uh, not all the jokes land as well as you might hope. Um, you, you can have different reactions to Alden Ehrenreich in the lead role. Uh, but I still I still really enjoyed myself and I kind of I saw where they were going with the plot or with the the heist movie kind of plot. And uh, I certainly got a big thrill out of the cameo appearance that we might get into a little bit later uh, right at the end. But We'll get into that. Yeah, we'll get into that. But uh, I don't know. How about you? Like, uh, were you, did you leave it feel, like disappointed? Yes. Like, were your expectations met? No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, I, I expected it to be good because based on what I had heard and based on how much I, you know, somewhat enjoyed Rogue One, I expected it to be pretty good, but I was, I left really disappointed. I, I couldn't. I definitely think Infinity War is way better. Um, there were very, very few parts in Solo that I, I feel I actively enjoyed. 
for okay, let's let's start at the beginning. Um, I watched this movie in like a a regular screening, so like no 3D, no AVX or whatever, and I couldn't help but think to myself, had I watched this in 3D, mm-hmm. I would have not known what was going on. I thought the lighting was really, really poor. Everything was washed out in this like the sepia tone, um, this orange hue. Oh yeah. Um, not unlike Mad Max, but at least for Mad Max, for me, the images were very clear. Uh, the cinematography it was excellent. I couldn't really say the same about Solo. Um, I think in that sense, The Last Jedi looked a lot better. I didn't really care for the plot itself, and I think. Alden Ehrenreich, even though there's like jokes made about how he had they had to like hire a uh, an acting coach for him, and then when the movie came out, people were like, "Hey, he's actually pretty good." I didn't think he was actually that good, but I think it's because his version of Solo isn't what I had in mind. I thought he came off as far too smug, and his little like grin smile just. It just really irked me. <laughs> I, I don't think Han Solo is a particularly cheery character. I think Alden Wright kind of missed the boat on the sarcastic side of Han Solo. I think Han Solo was just cool. He oozed charisma. Whereas Alden Ehrenreich was more like, I really want to be liked. So I'm going to be as charming as I can. And he almost tries a little too hard. Um, I think there are a lot of like Han Solo moments, you know, where he has like a one-liner and he has his wink in his eye. I think at one point he literally winks. There are a lot of relationships in there I felt like didn't go anywhere. I don't think anyone on the, in that movie really had like a, a full character arc. And honestly, I didn't really care for the plot. Like I, I wasn't really um, invested in whether or not they succeeded. And the one thing that really kind of threw me off was that monster in the middle of the film. Um, that worm thing. That, oh yeah. Now see, that's that's a part that I actually legitimately liked. I I thought that just came out of nowhere, and I had honestly zero idea what was going on in certain parts of the. Film. Oh really? Yeah. Okay, because I, now here's the weird thing. Everything you just said individually, I totally agree with, uh-huh. except for maybe the the Aaron Reich stuff. I feel I I enjoyed his performance a little bit more than you did, but each of those things, hundred percent agree with. Yeah, the cinematography, like the sepia tone stuff, like oh man. It drove me yeah, nuts. I mean that's like a that that's like a stylistic thing. Yes, but like yes. I hundred percent agree with you on like character arc. Um, the the story was a little bit bland. You know, it's kind of a little bit too one track and linear. Well, it's just Not like a, you know, I'm gonna double cross him. I'm gonna double cross him. I'm gonna double cross her. I'm gonna double cross them. And it, it it just got too much. And I one last thing was that I didn't like how it tied into the the broader Empire versus Rebellion story again. Oh right. In in the last part of the movie, I kind of had a minor issue with it. I was okay with it. I think it was interesting to see him tie into the bigger uh, universe, especially how he talks about going to Tatooine. It's it's weird for me to to find myself, and I I think I pointed this out in in the review I posted on on Kinetoscope too, uh, was the, for me, it's just that like the Star Wars experience that kind of carried me through and helped me kind of put that stuff aside. So that's why, while I did say that, that the the experience for me in the moment I enjoyed Solo more than Infinity War. You have that like you're kind of torn, or at least I'm torn um, in 
seeing the flaws of the film but liking it anyways that's like me with a lot of movies though so i i totally understand yeah and then one of the but one of the things uh, that that you pointed out that i legitimately enjoyed uh was the the kessel run that ha- features that big chase with the giant like planet-sized monster um with all the tentacles and the giant mouth and, and like a million eyes um i i actually really enjoyed that because and certainly the, the way they kind of escape it by uh, tricking it into falling into a big like black hole, gravity well type of thing. Because for me, that whole experience lived up to the kind of infamous uh, or the infamy of the Kessel Run. You know, they in the very first Star Wars film, they're like, oh, he completed the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. That's one of the like the biggest bits of the Star Wars myth that had yet to be shown to us in some way. And I feel like the way it was realized here with like, I don't know how much of it was done by uh, the original directors, Chris Miller and and Phil Lord and how much of it was Ron Howard and his team. But for me, it really ticked off a lot of boxes of like, if there was going to be like a monumental feat that was really impressive and enough to like be something that Han was still bragging about 10 years later, 20 years later, um, it should look the way it looked in this movie with uh, like just the absolute weirdness and the like infinite potential of space to have these completely whacked out things happen. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, giant asteroids smashing into each other and lightning storms and, and like a monster, the size of a mountain just falling into a black hole and getting, getting all of its like skin and tendons ripped off. Like that is just so fundamentally weird and creepy to me. And, uh, when they do finally get clear of it, I'm like, yeah, all right. I was, I was like in the moment there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those reasons, I really, really enjoyed that sequence, but I can also see how compared to other stuff we've seen from like space battles in the star Wars universe, it might come out of left field for somebody. I can, I can still see that. Yeah. So I think I've t- talked about this before, but we were talking about star Wars fatigue and I can a hundred percent say that I had definitely have it. I am really not looking forward to a Star Wars film every summer if this is the kind of quality that we get. I think one of the biggest faults about the Star Wars universe now is that I don't think they explain things very well. So there are two parts that um, that kind of bugged me. The first was that space poker game that Lando and uh, Han were playing. So you knew the stakes were high and it, it, you wanted it to feel high. But because the game was never explained to you, it's hard to get into it. It's hard to feel the emotional tension and the drama. A film like, say, Rounders, which is about poker, really sets things up very well. It sets up a lot of consequences and how the game is played. So when the final sort of like uh, scene comes, you you understand the stakes without being needed to, you know, have everything explained to you. The other thing was the Kessel Run. The one thing about the Kessel Run was that it was never, I think, really explained to us why the Kessel Run was important, other than the fact that the characters needed to complete it to get out of that or to complete the mission. Right. Um, but there were no stakes involved in the sense that um, we never really understood why the Kessel Run was dangerous, why it was really hard to accomplish, and what exactly is the route. Like, I always thought the Kessel Run was a race. Oh, yeah. And, and that was how I kind of pictured it in my head. So when it didn't really mesh with what I had in mind, maybe that's why I didn't enjoy it as much. But at the same time, I, 
I, I didn't think that Kessel Run, the, the importance or the significance of it was that great because it seems like something that, that the whole galaxy would know. But at the same time, it was like confined to this really small mission about trying to steal hyperfuel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's definitely a case of extreme fan service uh, as we get more and more of these movies and as they draw on more of the yes. the stuff that's previously only been in novels and comic books and video games in the Star Wars universe. Um, because I was well, going into those sequences with the Kessel Run, I was already more familiar with how it worked, um, if only vaguely, because I, I'm not a, a gigantic um, nerd when it comes to all of that ancillary stuff. But I knew that the Kessel Run wasn't a race because it wouldn't make any sense for there to be a race where everyone could potentially finish it at different speeds and lengths. Because parsecs is like a unit of distance, not of time. Um, It sounds like a unit of time because it's got like sex in there, SCCS. And and they talk about 12 and 13. Like if you're trying to get the number as small as you can, you, you, you kind of assume that you're racing against time. Then if you've picked up on a few of the, the like the comics or the video games that are set around that same time period, um, you can pick up on the idea that it is actually trying to complete it in a, as short of a distance as possible because it's got to do with like what you actually get from the planet Kessel and all this stuff. And it's, you know, it, 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 you can go really far into the weeds with it if you, if you try. Yeah. Um, so I think well, what these movies are going to, you know, maybe a, a potential pitfall for these movies, you know, cause obviously they've got like six or nine of them on the schedule for the immediate oh future. They got, you know, the, the guys from game of Thrones are making three of them. Ryan Johnson is making another trilogy. Um, John Favreau has got his live action TV show in the works. It's so much. it's just going to be, you know, complete overload. Yeah. Right. Um, and they are, as they go, they're going to need material to kind of, at least to, as a starting place. So, uh, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be cases where people are going to feel, oh, this doesn't feel like Star Wars anymore because they're going to be going into some really weird, uh, off the wall stuff. I think the less it's like Star Wars, I think the more I would enjoy it. But right now we're still trying to break free from that Star Wars mold. Yeah. And that kind of goes to your point of like, did they really need to hook this movie up to the kind of nascent rebellion stuff and uh the enfis nest you know that that uh pirate that chases han and uh and the other characters through much of the movie like i I would have almost been better or happier if that character had been revealed to be just an out and out pirate who kind of hijacks other people's scores rather than some kind of uh indirect connection to the rebellion uh speaking of ancillary star wars material um, huge spoiler alert for our listeners. So if you womp, womp, womp. so if if you want to skip ahead, feel free to. But Rob, I was under the impression that anything outside the movies was not considered non-canon. Oh no, this is where you're wrong. Yeah. So this takes place after Episode One, doesn't it? Yes. So and for anyone who's confused about what we're talking about, we are talking about the reveal that Darth Maul. Uh, the villain from episode one, The Phantom Menace, is alive and well in the Star Wars universe when we all thought that he'd been cut in half by Obi-Wan Kenobi at the end of episode one and uh, tumbled to his death. Right. So he's, so, re- he's revealed to be this like uh, galactic crime lord who's basically the big bad of all of the criminals in the entirety of Solo. Yeah, so he's um, based on the, the Clone Wars character where like he's half human and the bottom half of his body is like android, right? Or like yes. machine. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, you were right in thinking that 
Um, a lot of the material was officially made non-canon by Lucasfilm at a certain point a few years ago, and it was a very controversial decision with the fans. Uh-huh. But um, that applied mostly to the books, a lot of the books, a lot of the certainly the books that came after uh, previously after Episode Six, uh, Return of the Jedi, when that was the final story in the saga. Um, and a lot of the video games and and then anything that happened before episode one. But all the TV shows where that have uh, since the, since uh, the uh, prequel trilogy, episodes one, two and three concluded, there have been uh, two animated TV shows that have actually revealed that Maul was alive this whole time and mm-hmm. that hit the top half of his body was uh, sent to some junk planet and he went crazy and then he managed to fashion himself some robotic legs. Um, he was then saved by his brother who looks a lot like him has got like the stripy face, but he's like yellow um, and he's got a stupid name, uh, Savage Opress. You mean Savage <laughs> Opress? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was it was a bad name. I've just come right out and say yeah. that. But uh, there was this whole arc about how his brother saved him and kind of restored his sanity. But then uh, Maul ended up like, kind of dominating his brother and taking control of their their uh, uh, criminal enterprise. And, you know, it went on and on. But some of those stories were legitimately great because it kind of rev- it kind of showed that a character that had kind of maybe arguably been poorly used in episode one, who we didn't get to learn a whole lot about. They did a lot of development to kind of show all the potential that the character had and kind of build him up as a very cool villain. Um, so to kind of, he becomes the nemesis of Obi-Wan for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and apparently in the, the most recent, uh, animated show, Star Wars rebels, Obi-Wan and Darth Maul have this amazing showdown in the deserts of Tatooine. Uh, it's, I think in like, a late a late season episode of Star Wars Rebels, and apparently it's been called like one of the greatest episodes of Star Wars TV ever. Mm-hmm. So uh, that kind of I hadn't been keeping keeping track of that show, but that's kind of cool to know that um, it built to such a critically lauded moment. So yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of excited to see Maul show up in Solo. So I'm assuming Darth Maul is gonna be in future star wars films as well yeah because they're really setting him up as being like the big bad of this kind of side universe i saw it in the theater that was kind of like half packed because i saw it so late into its release but right when darth maul showed up there was like a visible audible gasp i mean like oh, oh that's good it's him yeah 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 so that was that was uh fun to see speaking of villains in solo back to some of the non-spoilery stuff I really, really like Paul mm-hmm. Bettany. I did too. But he plays a really sniveling villain. Yeah. That really has no rhyme or reason to what he does other than just to be evil. Yeah. I feel like he was more of like a like an in-between kind of guy so that the, because obviously the screenwriters knew that they were going to be dropping this Darth Maul mm-hmm. bomb uh, late in the script. So they kind of they, they came up with a character for Paul Bettany to play who was... Uh, you know, kind of an intermediary and he kind of feels like an intermediary the whole time. Like he never, other than that, like um, murder that he performs uh, when he's first introduced, you don't really get to see the depths of his like evilness or uh, his, like why we should be really afraid of him. Well, he says a lot of mean things. Yeah. That's, <laughs> but, that's uh, pretty much it. Yeah. But uh, from what I understand, he replaced Michael K. Williams, right? Yeah, so that was like a post-Ron Howard joining the the project decision. And I think this is a very Ron Howard film, and I I think a lot of other people have kind of said this before, is that it's a film that doesn't take a lot of risks, 
And it's a film that's relatively straightforward like any other Ron Howard film. It's very competent, but altogether not that interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, other than the Kessel Run sequence and the reveal of Darth Maul, I was just kind of overall was like, eh, you know, I didn't hate it. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, there there's something about watching a Star Wars film for me that, that I inherently enjoy more than Marvel superhero stuff. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that maybe this Maul reveal will set up um, some better stuff with like potentially an Obi-Wan Kenobi spinoff film with Ewan McGregor. Uh, something like that, um, or uh, more from the Kira character too, because this is the character played by Amelia Clark, who's like a quasi love interest for Han in Solo. Um, when they kind of reveal at the end her connection to Maul and uh, set her off to kind of rejoin him and potentially set up more movies, uh, it you know that that was kind of a, a indication that there's more going on there with with her character than just being you know. Uh, the love interest, which I initially thought she was that that was going to be kind of the the end of it. Yeah, I okay. So this kind of uh, goes back to spoilery parts of the film. So uh, Kira and Han are together at the beginning of the movie, and then they fast forward three years, and boom, they run into each other. That to me was very jarring. I did not like that at all. She is a very interesting character. I'll give her that because the fact that she's part of this like crimson. Um, what's that group called? Crimson, Crimson Hand, or Crimson Syndicate, or something like Crimson Sun, uh, something like that. Darth Maul's posse. <laughs> yeah, Darth Maul's posse. <laughs> yes, uh, the fact that she's part of that group really interests me. She, to me, is one of the few characters that really gets a character arc, where or a character backstory that is kind of interesting to me. Um, so I look, I, she's like the character I look forward to the most in future Star Wars films. Has there been a sequel greenlit for this one? Because it's not doing so hot at the box office. It's not. I mean, I, I really don't know what uh, what Lucasfilm might might choose to do with this. I mean, they may not they may not do any more solo films, uh, or they may just move on with like you know that Obi Wan Kenobi film or um, the Lando film that apparently has been quasi greenlit. Did you like Donald Glover? As Lando, uh, he was all right. I don't. They really didn't give. Yeah, I thought he was all right. I, I didn't. They they just didn't give him a lot to do. I mean, he didn't have a lot of memorable lines. Yeah, I wasn't blown away or anything. That scene where he's mourning his droid L three was kind of unintentionally really funny. Um, so I don't think there was anything cool or suave about Lando. He was just basically another guy at the space poker table uh, and who knows like maybe maybe the some of the stuff in there will kind of grow on us if on a second watch or something um or maybe yeah. he can maybe he can develop it with a with his own spin-off film who knows um but uh, yeah and he's a he's a bit of a dick too like yeah I don't, he doesn't do anything to like really redeem himself no but i think that's um you know that that's still in line with how Lando was originally introduced in Empire Strikes Back, though, because he doesn't really Lando it doesn't isn't really convinced to sort of help people out until right. But he does take like a one eighty. He does do a one eighty and becomes like a, a really major force in the rebellion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of this maybe you can chalk up to all the characters being younger too. I mean, obviously the we're seeing them at a the, yeah, they're all fair their, enough. They're all in their twenties and thirties. Um, which brings us to the Incredibles. It's time. To make some wrong things right. Help me bring supers back into the sunlight. We need to change people's perceptions about superheroes. And Elastigirl is our best play. Better than me? 
Yeah, something that is actually pretty special in my view. You think it's special, eh? Well, I mean, I you know, there was a lot of potential pitfalls with this, I would say, and it jumps over them. I agree. I don't know if it jumps over them so much as it avoids them. Um, I definitely enjoyed the first one a lot more. The second one I felt was a rehash of certain points that the first one had made clear. I, like some of the most memorable things about the first um, Incredibles was sort of like how it really tied into more mature themes and, and real life social issues. Yeah. The second one did do the same, but I always thought the second one, the most memorable thing was Jack-Jack, which I think is a bit of a problem in relation to how strong the story is and how strong the other characters are. Because Jack-Jack is, he's there for comic relief, right? He's not a huge plot point. So if the most memorable part of a film is a is a non sorry non essential character in that sense, I kind of feel that it's missing quite a lot of the meat of the story. Um, I didn't find the villain particularly compelling. Not I I, I think Syndrome is one of the best villains ever. I oh, absolutely yeah. loved yeah. him. But other than that, I mean the animation is fantastic. I thought the action sequences were fantastic. I thought it had a lot of trademark. Brad Bird sort of like kinetic action and like creativity to it. But I just felt it was missing a little something that either improved the characters or improved the the world that they lived in. I see where you're coming from. I did enjoy it more than you did, I think. I definitely agree that maybe, you know, the first one was so subversive in how it at the time it was coming out in 2004 when um, we were still a few years off from superhero movie domination the way we know it today. Um, so it wasn't, you know, the, the Incredibles wasn't coming out at a time when it was contending with all of these live action movies. And it, all it had to do was subvert the, the, what people basically knew about superheroes mm-hmm. from comic books. You know, the uh, the Spider-Man the Spider-Man movies were in theaters, but it wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. So now The Incredibles 2 comes on scene and everyone's like overloaded on superheroes all the time. And maybe the, this movie could have done a little bit more work to uh, to kind of, uh, I don't know, tease the superhero genre a little bit or or critique it a little bit more than it does here. We, we don't get as many kind of uh, kind of winking nods to to what's really happening with superheroes that, that maybe we should have. Uh, but still, I, I really liked the, the first movie was all about Mr. Incredible, Bob Parr, dealing with the fact that superheroes were illegal and that he was going out, uh, you know, working with what he didn't know at the time was a, a, a villain to do superhero stuff on the sly and uh, fight these giant robots on this island. Um, and that causes all this strife at home where his wife doesn't want him to be going out and doing this. Um, and then there was even like a little bit of a hint of like uh, a p- potential infidelity yes. thread in the first one. Yes. Uh, so there was all this like domestic trouble, this uh, dysfunction on the go. Um, and then this one comes in and I think it makes the right decision in flipping things over to Helen Parr, Mrs. Incredible, or Elastigirl, and kind of making her the person who goes out and has a has a life outside of the family and is right. doing superhero work, and uh, maybe that's causing trouble at home. So that that was that was a, that was the the right move to make, I think. But you don't get as much you don't get as much energy from it the second time around. I think there's a gender reversal thing going on in Incredibles two, 
that I think works obviously a lot better than than having an all-female Ghostbusters and Ocean's 8 or whatever. But I feel like she goes through the same 